Hope y'all are doing well. If you have a Bible, you can open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's in the New Testament there. Uh, maybe about the sixth book or so in the New Testament. If you don't have one, you can look underneath you and grab you one of those and keep it. It's all yours. Um, those are for you to take and give away. If you know someone that needs one and you brought your own Bible, take one of those and, and give it to them. Um, we want you to use those to, to hand out. We, as I said, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We've been studying through the book of 1 Corinthians a week at a time. So this is our seventh week in 1 Corinthians, uh, and we're in chapter 7. So we've been doing a chapter a week, which is a little bit difficult, doing a chapter a week. Um, we kind of have to move a little fast. So if I were preaching 1 Corinthians 7 um, <clears throat> in, a, uh, in the more kind of standard way that we do it, this would probably be about three sermons uh, instead of one. But uh, we're going to do it in one. I did it in one already, so I know that I can do it again. So uh, let's all stand, and we'll read the text together. Uh, we read this out loud together, and we stand when we read it. If you're able, you can stand. Uh, at the end, I'll say it's the word of the Lord, and you'll say, thanks be to God. And that's for us all, uh, submitting ourselves to, to the leading of the Scripture, submitting ourselves of our own volition to um, follow and obey what it says. Uh, and then after that, I'll pray. Let's, let's read the text. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's what they said. They were asking. But because of the temptation towards sexual morality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority of her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority of his own body, but the wife does. Do not, buy, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as of myself, um, but each has his own gift from God. One of a kind and one from another. Paul was single, by the way. Um, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. <clears throat> but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. If the husband... And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if a brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates... Let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Wife, how do you know whether or not you will save your husband? Husband, how do you know whether or not you'll save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is what my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was any... But at the time of his call uncircumcised, let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything or nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commands of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when you were called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he was a free. Likewise, he who was free when he was called a slave of Christ. You... 
were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, therefore let him remain with God. Now, concerning the betrothed, this just kind of means engaged. I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they have no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxiety. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or the betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay down any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, um, and, he ha- and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. Since then, so then he who marries his betrothed does well, but he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, She is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I, too, have the Spirit of God. It's the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Let's pray. God, thank you for this word. We thank you that you are here. We ask that you would teach us. God, Holy Spirit, would you fill me completely so that everything I say would be true and helpful and profitable for all here. And God, would you fill us all, including me, to have ears to listen to your word that All that it says, we would want to hear and obey and follow. Um, We pray that there are some tough texts here, Lord, that we would all have receptive, soft hearts to the things that are being uh, told to us uh, by your Spirit. And that we would have hearts that want to listen and learn uh, to obey you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in the Middle Ages, there was this priest, this monk, that was found down in the basement of his uh, monastery. And as he was down there, he was uh, reading and studying. And all of a sudden, he just starts destroying everything. He's p- picking up the stone tablets and shattering them. He's taking all the parchments and he's ripping them apart. And he's angry and he's just freaking out down there. He's throwing things around. He's absolutely freaking out. And the other monks rush to him. He's like, what's the matter with you? They thought he was crazy. Of course, this monk was celibate. And they're like, what's the matter with you? He goes, I found it. We're all wrong. There's an R in it the whole time. It's not celibate. It's celebrate. Get it? And they're like, oh, man, we've been practicing celibacy for so long. We could have been married. And that's just a joke. That really didn't happen. Um, But the whole point is, uh, the whole point is, 
what, that, that helps us understand, at least I think, going into 1 Corinthians 7, what's going on, right? So the background is, as we've been going through 1 Corinthians, uh, we've discussed that the, the outline of 1 Corinthians is really a big two pieces, right? The first six chapters of 1 Corinthians are addressing the things that Chloe's people, chapter 1, verse 11, had written to Paul. Chloe's people had written to Paul. There's four issues you need to deal with with these people. There's factions in the church. There's incest in the church. There's litigation. They're suing each other. And there's sexual morality in the church. And so Paul addresses those four things in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 6. Now, he's going to shift here in chapter 7 for the rest of the rest of it, all the way to chapter 16. The Corinthian church had corresponded with him via letter, and they're asking certain questions like marriage and food sacrifice to idols and gifts and uh, these kinds of things for the, rest of the, for the rest of the book. And so in chapter 7, verse 1, Paul, you can see the shift in it where he's been talking about the things that he wanted to talk about. Now in chapter 7, verse one, he says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And so one of the things they wrote among many of them were uh, the issue of, you can see, is it good for a man not to have sexual relationships with a woman? Now, this is because the party of pro-celibacy had come into the city or the church at Corinth and had told them these were ascetics. Ascetics, asceticism is just the, the belief system of denying of the body. All the impulses that you have in your body to eat, to have sex, to all these kinds of things are all wrong, always wrong. And as an ascetic or as a pro-celibate, you should ne- ne- uh, neglect those things, and the Lord's really super pleased with you if and when you neglect those things all the time, whether you're married or not married. The Lord's more pleased with you as you neglect the body's, and they think, always sexual or sinful impulses. Anytime you have those, the more you neglect those, the more the Lord's pleased with you. Now, Paul is going to address that in a quick nutshell. Obviously, that's not true because inside the confines of biblical marriage between a biological man from birth and a biological woman from birth, those sexual impulses that you have are not to be neglected. As a matter of fact, it's the complete opposite. They are to be enjoyed. And God says that is a good thing. It's, it's, it's his design to wire us in that certain way as sexual beings. And it's pleasing to him and very good when those things are uh, done in, in, in the confines of biblical marriage. And so uh, Paul's going to write against the pro-celibates or the ascetics who are saying never do that and neglect all kinds of in- sexual or sinful impulses from your, from your body. And so they're asking, is it good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? Even in marriage, they were saying, don't do that. And in this first section, verses 1 through 16, they're just telling them, be celibate even in marriage. And if you can't be celibate, divorce your spouse so that you can be celibate like us. And so Paul's going to address these insane ideas that they're giving him, uh, especially in the city of Corinth, which is obviously just rampant with sexual immorality. And so they were, they were uh, swinging the pendulum all the way to the other side in the city of Corinth where it was just debaucherous, all the way over to just don't do anything ever, even in marriage. Uh, And usually, usually, when we swing the pendulum from the extreme all the way to the other extreme, we're still not walking down what would be the biblical uh, middle road. And so here Paul's going to try to navigate this biblical middle road and argue against these pro-celibates that had come to Corinth promoting that uh, this should happen. And so as Paul's leaving the, the debaucherous ideas of chapters 5 and 6 of sex morality and incest in the family, all the way over to addressing these pro-celibates. 
Blomberg writes this. I think, I think it's a pretty good introduction. Paul's balance between the extremes of indulging in sin and then ref- refraining from sin produces this sense of sensitive mediating position between the tendency in Jewish circus to overemphasize marriage too much and the Greek and especially Gnostic trend to idealize asceticism, which is ne- the neglect of any kind of uh, bodily impulse. And so like chapter 5 and 6, if you remember last week, uh, and Two weeks ago, we said chapters 5 and 6 kind of have a, an ABA kind of structure where A and 5 was talking about sexual morality and it ends chapter 6 and A prime with sexual morality and the B is the, the litigation. This, this is the same way, obviously a different material, but chapter 7 also has kind of an ABA. A um, is, is 1 through 16 and A prime where he picks up the same argument is in 25 through 40 and sitting there in the middle is verses 17 through 24 is the B. Now, in, in chapter 7, the, the middle part for chapter 7 is the summary argument of the entire chapter. Like, he, he's going to make some arguments against the pro-celibates, and he's going to make some closing arguments against the pro-celibates, and in chapters, or chapter 7, verse 17 through 24, is the main argument of it all, which is basically just this. However you were when you got saved, whatever situation you were in, stay in that situation. Your life's short. Eternity's really long. Whatever situation you found yourself in when you got married, stay there. That's why he's like, if you were uncircumcised, just stay uncircumcised. If you were a slave, just stay a slave. Now, he does make a little concession. If you can actually free yourself, then you should. But in a general sense, and that's why he's relating it to marriage. However you were when you got married as a married person, stay in that situation. That's where you should stay. That's, that's how God's called you. Now, he's going to make some, some, some slight concessions, which I'll talk about. But that's kind of the general summary argument, which is given to us in 17 through 24, which we'll get to, which we'll get to. So uh, first, I want to look at verses 1 through 16. Now, the, the celibates had come in. The pro-celibates had come in and say, you should never, ever, uh, ever have sexual relations with any person, no matter what. And so... They're asking, is this right? Now, concerning about the matters you wrote to us, is it good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? Vice versa, you can say a woman with a man. And so, in the verses 1 through 16, go ahead and put up point number 1. In verses 1 through 16, Paul's going to begin making his arguments against the pro-celibacy group in verses 1 through 16. All right? So, what he's going to do is, in a threefold manner, answer these. So, the first kind of arguments that he starts making is in verses 3 through seven. Let's read two through seven. But because of the temptation of sexual morality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Um, just to, I didn't say this in first service, but just to make sure we understand the, the, uh, the mandate in Genesis one to be fruitful and multiply, Paul's totally for. Even though he's a single man, he understands the, 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 the biblical mandate, the cultural mandate of being fruitful and multiply. And he understands just simple mathematics, right? If everybody in the world becomes single, then, you know, a couple of generations from now, there's no more people, right? So we have to have people getting married, having babies, if we want to just keep being humans, right? So he understands that and he believes in that. Uh, so when he argues for people like being like me, being single, he understands that not everybody can do that and not everybody's going to do that. And if everybody did that, then we would just die. Like there'd be no more people to evangelize because there'd be no more people, right? So he understands that. So let's go to verse two and three. So he understands that there's going to be people that are going to be married and he knows that's a good thing. He even writes in Ephesians five, um, outlines, uh, husband and wives in Colossians three, um, what they should do. So chapter seven, 
verse 3. The husband should give the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority of her own body, but the husband does. For now remember, the argument is the pro-celibates have come in and said spouses should never, ever, ever have sex with each other. And so Paul's combating that saying no. So you go ahead and put up A. Um, point A, the argument against is that abstinence should only be for a brief uh, agreed period of time in marriage. Now, I put in marriage because it's obvious outside of marriage, abstinence should always be, right? There should, you should be celibate all the time if you're not married. Uh, but those who are, there should be a brief uh, agreed a period of time. And let's just make sure we're clear here. Paul says uh, in verse 5, well, l- let's keep reading. That's why he's saying the wife should give to his wife, the husband should give to her wife her conjugal rights. The, the conjugal rights can literally be translated, give back to which that is owed. Now, I wouldn't use that in, 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 in your language with your spouse. You owe me, give back to which that is owed. I wouldn't say that, but that's the literal translation, all right? Um, <laughs> don't use that later. Uh, likely it won't go well. And likewise, the wife for her husband, for the wife does not have authority over her own body. Here's the main argument. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does. If you like that husband, like I have authority over you, don't forget the second part where it says the husband does not have authority over his wife, but the wife does. She can say, well, I own you too. And she does. And so, uh, and you do what she says. We all do what they say. Verse five, do not deprive one another. So here's, here's the, uh, the concession. Abstinence should only be for agreed period of time. He says, do not deprive one another. Except perhaps, so this, this abstinence where Paul's prescribing in marriage as something is not a, a command. Every married couple should practice abstinent periods and, and focus in on prayer. He's just saying, if you want to, you can. But if a husband and wife say it in their, he- in their heads, you know what, we're never going to do that. God's fine with that. You don't have to, as husbands and wives, have this mandated like abstinence period of prayer. You don't have to. If you want to, you can. But is, this is not a command. This is if an agreed. The, the word agreed. I probably, uh, I probably should have underlined the word agreed. Like it's if they both agree that they should do it. And when they do it, it's not just uh, do whatever we want here. You know, play Nintendo and whatever. I don't have Nintendo anymore. I dated myself. But it's <laughs> for devoting yourselves to prayer. And then make sure you come back again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack in self control. And then he says. Um, that as a, as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all of you as myself, single like me, but each one has his own gift from God. This means that there is the gift of singleness, the gift that a man can have or a woman can have of wanting to live a celibate life or the gift of marriage. Both are gifts and they should be viewed in that way. One of one kind and one of another. And so Paul finishes by this the saying this abstinence should only be for a brief period of time by saying, talking about himself and says that he enjoys singleness. He enjoys celibacy. Likely Paul was married at some point and his wife had probably passed away. We know that he was likely a member of the Sanhedrin. It mentions in Acts that he voted. I casted my vote. It could just mean that he agreed with the Sanhedrin's vote, but it also could just mean that he was actually part of the Sanhedrin and that he was in order to be a part of the Sanhedrin, you got to be married. So it could be 
prior to his conversion that he had a wife, that she had passed away, and that after conversion he had switched over and said, I'm just going to focus in on ministry, never going to get married again. I have the charisma, the gift, and it is, the word gift there is the word charisma. It is a true gift like we see in spiritual gifts. This is a gift. Now, if you're single and you're like, I don't like that gift, that doesn't feel like a gift to me. It's a gift. We'll talk about that later. It is a gift, and whether you think it is or not, it is. Um, So Paul closes this argument about abstinence, about being it only for an agreed short period of time, answering that first question saying, well, should married couples just never, ever engage in sex? And he's like, no, of course not. If you want to, uh, for a short time you can, but they should, and it's right, and that's what they should do. Um, Now, talking again about the celibacy, the pro-celibates are are, are pushing it, saying you you should do it. Paul's going to agree that maybe some people have that. Maybe some people should. They're pushing it, and that's just for a select few. So in verses 8 and 9, you can go ahead and put up point B. He says, celibacy is a gift for some. So they're pushing it, but it's not for all. It's for some. And so in verse 8 and 9, he says, he just finished talking about the gift of celibacy. He says, to the unmarried and the widows. Now, uh, I know the word there says unmarried. Uh, the word widows is in the feminine. The word unmarried is in the masculine. And the word unmarried can also be translated as male widows, male widowers. And I think that's actually what it is. I think it's to the male widowers and to the female widowers. So he's shifting where in verses 1 through 7, he's talking to people who are married. Now he's talking about to people who were once married, but not now. And he's saying there is some chance that some of you might be celibate for the rest of your life, and that's a gift. And so he, he says celibacy is a gift for some. In verses 8 and 9, To the unmarried, to the widows, I say it is good for them to remain single like me, or as I am. But, and here's the little concession, if they cannot exercise self-control, that cannot, you just need to strike that through. That's actually not. It's if they are not, it's not like I have no control over myself and I cannot exercise self-control. It's, it's, it's actually if they are not exercising self-control. So it's not a matter of, well, I just can't control myself. It's a matter of you can and you're either choosing to obey God or not obey God. And so if they are not exercising self-control, then they should marry. For it's better to marry than to be aflame with passion. Just always wanting to be able to engage in sexual uh, behavior. So he says um, that celibacy is a gift for some, is basically the point he's trying to combat against the the pro-celibates. For some, but not for all. And Paul understands just the sheer mathematics of it. Uh, Now, in verses 8, through, I'm sorry, uh, 10 through 16, he's going to continue uh, arguing against the pro-celibates. And in this section, the pro-celibates were telling everybody that was married, just get a divorce now. That's what you need to do. In order to really be celibate, uh, if you just get a divorce, then you won't have to worry about it. And so you should get a divorce. Now, Paul's going to address the idea of divorce, especially in the context of Christianity, and help them see that this is not, not the plan of God. And so... <clears throat> The third argument he makes against the pro-celibates is in verses 10 through 16. You can go ahead and put up point C, which is, as long as it depends on you, Christian, do not divorce your spouse. Do not divorce your spouse. Now, the reason why I say Christian is because you cannot control a non-Christian. You can't control your spouse at all. Uh, They have a free will, right? They they make their own decisions. But uh, especially when people are non-Christians and they're not guided by the Holy Spirit uh, and you try to stay together, if the... The non-Christian spouse, husband or wife, doesn't want to stay. You can't make them. 
And so Paul is going to talk about that scenario when we get to verse 15. But he's going to say, if you're married as a Christian to a non-Christian, he's going to say you should stay. Now, I want to make sure as we're going into this that I just make one little small understanding about what we believe about the Bible. If we are inerrantists, that means we believe the Bible is uh, inerrant, without error, inspired by God, uh, written by man, but still without error, then when we see verses in the little parenthetical statements where he says, not I, but the Lord, and then verse 12, I, not the Lord, we don't take those as, well, the one that Jesus said is important, but the one that Paul says isn't. And even in verse 25, when he says that statement. So let, let me show you what I mean. Verse 10 to the mayor to give this charge, and here's a little parenthesis, not I, but the Lord. Basically, you say, well, Jesus said that, so it really extra counts. In verse 12, it says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord. Paul's saying, I said this, not Jesus. We could think, well, well, then Paul's just saying it. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I can listen to Jesus, but I don't have to worry to Paul. Even in verse 25, now concerning the truth, I have no command from the Lord, like Jesus never said anything, but I'm going to give my judgment. Well, that's just Paul's judgment, right? Let's make sure we understand what inerrancy means. What he's saying is Jesus, when he was alive, actually said something about marriage. And here it is. He tells us that in verses 10 and 11. And then in verse 12 and even in verse 25, Jesus never said anything about this right here, but I'm going to say it. But because we believe in inerrancy that Paul wrote as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, when Paul writes these things and says these things, it's from Jesus too. It carries just as much weight as from God as verses 10 and 11. 12 and 25 and everything after is from God, just like 10 and 11. All right, so when we read this, just because Paul says, Jesus didn't say this and I did, it doesn't matter. That's irrelevant because here it is written in the Bible, right? So it's just as much from God as verses 10 and 11. That's just, want to make sure we understand as we read that. We don't, like, well, Jesus' words matter, matter more than Paul's, not when they're written down and they're in the scriptures. You know, if Paul's just saying, hey, I really like chicken sandwiches, then, okay, great for you, Paul. But when it's written down in, in the Bible, that's, that's God's words, all right? So he would love Chick-fil-A. Anyway, to, verse 10, to the married, he would probably get them to stay up. No, 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 they're not. I really wish they were open on Sundays. Like, you always want it on Sunday. Like, thoughts closed. Anyway, verse 10, to the married, I give this charge. So Jesus says this, and he's quoting Jesus in, math, in Mark, in Mark chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. He's just quoting Jesus. So they're saying, just get a divorce. Here's what Jesus says. The wife should not separate from her husband. That's just straightforward, right? There's no exceptions, and it's the reverse. The husband should not separate from his wife. Jesus is not giving concessions towards divorce. No. Have you read Genesis 2? The wife should not separate from her husband. The husband should not separate from her wife. Divorce should not ever happen. But if she does, she should remain unmarried. So what happens if, if they actually do? Because we're messy sinners all of us, and we do that, right? What happens? Well, then she should remain unmarried. What if she wants to get remarried again? She has an option, and here it is. Or else be reconciled to her husband, or be reconciled to his wife. You have one option, if according to the scriptures, according to Jesus, as Paul quotes Matthew chapter 10. If you get divorced, you do have one option, and it's back to option A. You can get, get remarried to the same person, or you can just remain single. According to the scriptures, this is what he says. Now, um, I understand that uh, there are a lot of questions surrounding marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And I just want to point you to this. In um, February the 3rd and February the 10th of 2013, I preached uh, th through the book of Matthew what I think is the hardest 
text in the Bible on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And I would just point you to that. I preached Matthew chapter 19, where the, the supposed exception clause is given by Jesus. And so I just I invite you, if you want to know more about that, I invite you to go and listen to February 3rd and February 10th of 2013 on iTunes. We were actually preaching through the book of Matthew through the summer, and we're coming up to Matthew chapter 19. And I was like to Joe and Jack, you know what? I want to stop Matthew right now. And I want to take this entire fall to study that one text. And I'm going to start it back up in the, in the, in the spring. So we stopped. We preached through the book of Philippians that fall. And then we picked up Matthew in the spring. And I took the entire fall to study just that text so that I made sure that I was as precise as I could be. And I knew exactly what I believed on the hardest text in the Bible on marriage. And so I invite you to go to, Matt, to that and find it on iTunes and listen to it where I talk about marriage uh, divorce and remarriage and what I think uh, the Bible teaches there and what would be the view of the pastors here at Remedy Church. Um, So anyway, uh, I know as we talk about divorce, as we talk about remarriage, we can all say, yeah, but what about? Yeah, but what about? But how about this? Uh, Every single one of us has in some way been affected by divorce, right? My dad got divorced before he met my mom. And so I have a sister that never lived in my house, lives in Mississippi. I barely ever see her. What? That's weird. Like, so I understand, like I had to grow up thinking my dad's divorced and he's been married to my mom. And I read these scriptures and I see that he divorced his wife who's still alive and didn't get remarried to her, but married my mom. Okay. What does that say about them? And what does that say about me? What does that even say about me? I'm a child of them disobeying the scriptures. What does that say about me then? And so I realized there's tons of tons of questions that we can ask and I know that um, when we point out the ideal and then you realize that we're all kind of messy sinners, it just produces tons of questions. So uh, I will answer those. Anything that you have, I want to make sure that you know. Anything that you have, let's talk about it. But right now, I'm just going to point out, because of time constraints, the ideal of what Paul's saying. And then we'll talk about those things. Because I know that there's real questions, you know, uh, about that happened from abuse and these kinds of things. So... Back to, the, back to here. So in Paul's mind here, as he's un, uh, delivering and, and helping us understand what's going on in verses 10 and 11, that's his answer. You should not get divorced ever. And if you do, you can either stay single or you can get married to the entire, to, back to the, the person you're married to. In verses 12 and 13, he's going to paint the scenario about unbelievers and believers. And he's going to say, what happens whenever you're, we use the term unequally yoked? You know, there's a believer that's married to an unbeliever. What should happen? In verses 12 and 13, he tells us, uh, he says that if a brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she still wants to stay or she consents, she wants to stay married, then he should, he shouldn't divorce her. He should stay married. And likewise, the same thing, if a woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with him, she should not divorce him. So if you are, as you got married um, and you became a Christian, stay as you are. That's what we're going to see in 17 through 24. If they want to stay with you, you should. Now, in verse 15, he's going to go to the scenario of if the unbelieving spouse wants to leave, what do you do? Let's note this. Um, And remember, see, as long as it depends on you, Christian, do not divorce your spouse. So this is what it says in verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates. Let's just make sure we understand the unbelieving partner. 
separates. I forgot verse 14. I'll, I'll explain 14 because I know that sounds crazy. If the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband, does that mean that if you're married to, if you're an unbeliever married to a husband, that you're kind of like sanctified through marriage and you get to go to heaven anyway, riding their coattails and the children too? That's not what it means. Uh, it just means that if you are, and this is such a fast answer, I know, but if you're, if you are married to someone who's a Christian and your children uh, of someone who's a Christian, this made holy means you kind of get these spin-off blessings of being in their family. So if they're, if they're a Christian and they pray to the Lord, Lord, provide some food for us. We're running short and we need money. And the Lord answers that prayer. The unbelieving husband or unbelieving w- wife, they're receiving that blessing too. If they prayed it, he, ha- he hears it, but he has no reason to answer the prayers of unbelievers, right? But when a believer prays, the children and the unbelieving spouse, husband or wife, receives those kind of spinoff blessings when he provides for them and gives them food and helps them have money and helps them pay the bills, etc. That's what it means here. They're, they're, they're receiving the spinoff blessings. Back to 15. What happens whenever a divorce does happen in, in an unbeliever and a believer? Just, let's just note that there's no scenario in Paul's mind where a Christian divorces a Christian. That's not even in the text. It's just a believer versus an unbeliever. And it's the unbelieving partner that instigates it. The unbelieving partner is the one that wants the divorce. If the unbelieving partner separates, Paul says this, let it be so. What's he doing? Is he contradicting himself? Didn't he say in 10 through 11 when he quoted Jesus it shouldn't happen? He's not contradicting himself. He's simply saying, in this sinful world, you can't make an unbeliever stay with you. You could try your hardest. You could pursue them like, you're, like crazy. But if they've decided they're going to leave, then they're going to leave. And then he says, let it be so. In such cases, mm, this, is where it gets, this is where it gets crazy, right? The, in such cases, the brother or sister, here it is, not enslaved. That two words... Uh, in English, which is just one in, in Greek, has caused tons and tons and tons of things to be written about the Christian uh, response towards marriage. As a matter of fact, that phrase has created this little thing called the Pauline privilege, in which people say the believer is now free to re- remarry because Paul says you can remarry whoever you want right there. What does not enslaved mean? Not enslaved to the marriage? Free to just be single now and not be enslaved? Free to go remarry whoever you want? What does not enslaved mean? And let's notice, it's really key, Paul does not use language of bond. Like that's what the, the, what, when the Bible talks about marriage, it uses this bond language. That you are bound together, you're bonded together. Paul doesn't say now you're unbonded or you're unbound. Instead, he switches over to slave language. He uses to the doulos language and says, you're not, you're not uh, enslaved anymore or you're, you're free now. He doesn't say the bond's broken. He just says that this particular time here is that you're not enslaved there anymore. But it doesn't negate verses 10 where... Uh, you shouldn't separate, but if you do, you're not enslaved. I think what's going on here is if you are married as a Christian, your, your unbelieving spouse leaves, what he's saying is you're now free from that particular, and uh, you're not enslaved to that particular marriage anymore. It doesn't mean you can remarry. It doesn't mean you're in sin. It just means uh, all divorce is sin, but you're not in perpetual ongoing sin. It means that now you did everything you could to keep your spouse. They didn't want to stay. And now you can live your life as a single, unless that spouse wants to come back to you. Um, 
And I think maybe the best way to understand is he uses the slave language instead of the bond language is this. You can understand this. You're not enslaved to stay in the earthly marriage, but the heavenly bond that God has created hasn't been broken yet unless they die. If they die, the heavenly bond has been broken. He's going to tell us that later. But the, the kind of earthly enslavement isn't there because you can't make them stay. Um, and if we want to make sure we understand this, because this is where it gets trouble. People zoom into verse 15 and they take verse 15 and they isolate it over here and they write Pauline privilege and they say all these things. But if we just look at the simple context of the, just the chapter, Paul is not saying that Christians can get divorced. Remember verse 10 and 11 where he says, I give you this charge. The wife should not separate from her husband, nor should the husband separate from the wife. And if they do, they can either be single or they can go back to that original spouse. That's their options. As a matter of fact, the whole point of 17 through 24, the, the summary statement, the crux of the entire argument of the chapter is remain as you are. I mean, you can see it in verse 24. In whatever condition you were called, let him remain there with God. So you should stay married. You should not get a divorce in this life. He, he ends the entire chapter in verse 39 by saying, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. So if you do end up divorcing uh, someone at some point in your life, can you remarry? Yes, you can remarry that person. Or if they die, then you can remarry someone else. That's not like, well, let me give them some arsenic. And that's not, that's people, crazy people have done that, I promise you. But that is, not, that is not what you should do, right? A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes. And then he says, only in the Lord. This time, make sure you marry someone who's a Christian. Because there's no categories for Paul for Christians divorcing Christians. It's not even in the Bible. So... Back to understanding verse 15. So he says, uh, you're not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Husband, you know whether you're saved your wife. Basically, referring back to 12 through 13, if you stay with an unbeliever, you have the ability through, through uh, living out as Christ wants you to be able to share the gospel with them so that they can actually come to know Christ. Very similar to the argument made in 1 Peter 3, 1 through 2, where he says, wife, by your... Uh, gentle, meek behavior, you can win over uh, them with the word. So uh, that's, the, that's the end of Paul talking about um, these pro-celibate uh, arguments that they were making and defending against them. And just to remind you, what he's telling them is you can abstinence or celibacy can, should happen in marriage, but only for a brief time, not the entire marriage. Some people might want to be celibate. They could be true, but that's only for some, not for all. And lastly, when they're telling you divorce, that's just not biblical. You should not divorce your spouse ever. Uh, if they leave you, the unbelieving spouse leaves you, then that's one thing. But other than that, uh, you should never get divorced. And the only person you can remarry is actually that same spouse. Now, in verse 17 through 24, I've already read it out loud. Uh, we don't have to uh, go verse by verse. But basically, I told you, this is the summary argument of the chapter. And if you want the nutshell or the, the, the brass tacks or the, the final statement of what's going on in 17 through 24, he finishes it in 24. Brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain. Put up number two for me. So the second thing that's happening in here is the whole argument, which is, in whatever condition you were saved... You should stay in that condition. Now, he does make a concession, like if you're a slave and somehow you can achieve your freedom, then you should do that, right? That's fine. But uh, as a whole, as a general way to think, in whatever way that you were, you were saved, 
as a married person or as an unmarried person, you should stay that way. The reason why he's saying that is because these particular people in Corinth, Paul, they really did believe like, and and we should too, the the return of Jesus is literally like any day now, right? It's just going to happen any day now. So you can do all that, but then Jesus is just going to come back. Like it's all over. So why not, since Jesus is about to come back, just concentrate on ministry because like tomorrow he's going to come back or the day after that it's done. So you can make all these plans, but you should, you could also just spend those next few days or next few years really concentrating on doing the Lord's will and then you'll go to heaven. So that makes more sense and in a kingdom of perspective. So that's kind of the, the summary argument, the general way that he's arguing. Now, when he goes down to verse 25, he's going to, again, say some more things against the pro-celibacy group. He's going to make more arguments against them. But here he's going to be talking to singles uh, and those who are going to, be, going to be married, engaged couples. So you can put up number three for me. So more arguments against the pro-celibacy group. But instead of ter- talking to the marrieds, he's talking to the, I'm, I'm engaged to be married and I'm, I actually have the gift of celibacy right now. Now, just make sure you understand that the gift of celibacy, the gift of singleness is not a permanent gift. It is temporary for most of you. And so if you have that gift right now, um, realize most of you will get married. And that's okay um, that you have it now because uh, this is a, a, an amazing time for you to be able to use it for the Lord. That's what Paul's going to say here in verses 25 and following. Now, let's just look at 25 through 35. And let me, uh, let me help us understand what's going on here because there's some, there's some... It's difficult to read. Verse 25. Now concerning... The betrothed, that just means engaged. Uh, betrothed back then is a little bit different than our engaged. Like if you're engaged to someone and you want it done, you'd be like, we're done. That's it. If, you, if you're engaged or betrothed back then, you couldn't just be like, hey, we're done. You actually had to go through a divorce proceeding even to, to nullify the, the, the engagement process. That's why in Matthew 1, Joseph says that he wanted to divorce Mary quietly, but they were just betrothed. They weren't married. Uh, and so you had to have a divorce even to break the betrothal. And usually that would happen if there was fornication. If you thought that your spouse had already had sex with someone else, then you could divorce them, and that was okay. And divorce was only okay in the betrothal period. I'm getting into my other sermon, uh, not in marriage, but that's my other sermon. Go, re- go find it in February 3rd and 10th in 2013. Anyway, back to this. So now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one uh, who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy, I think that in view of the, you want to take note of this, present distress. You see the word present distress in verse 26a? He's going to explain the present distress for us in verses 29 through 31. So when we get to 29 through 31, he's going to explain the present distress. Now, keep reading with me. It is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if you're a betrothed woman, uh, if, if, if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. He's basically just explaining the summary argument of 17 through 24. Remain as you are. Now, we will, we, let's take note of one little thing here. He's reiterating the argument that you should just kind of stay as you are. But he makes one small concession. One small concession. Uh, stay as you are. However... If you do marry, you have not sinned. So he's saying you should stay as you are, single or married. But if you happen to be one of these people that are single, that moves over to marriage, you have not sinned. We should notice the explicit language that he uses to note for singleness, the move from singleness to marriage 
is not sin. And the absolute absence of if you shift over from married to singleness, he does not at all say he could say and you have not sinned. Right. It is not there at all. So the one concession he makes is the movement from sin to marriage. But there's no language whatsoever because it's not even in his mind to think moving from marriage over to and divorcing over to singleness. He would say, and that is sin. So let's just notice that there, it's not even there, right? He makes one concession and it's only in one direction is not sin. The other direction is. And then he gets to, uh, yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. Remember how I told you, note present distress and it's going to be explained in 29 through 31. Note worldly troubles because it's going to be explained in 32 through 35. This is all going to be on the screen if you're like, that's too much fun. I got it. I got you. It's coming up. We're good. All right, here it is. Um, verse A. Or, I'm sorry, point A. Point A. Point A. So here's the, uh, the first argument against pro-celibates where he gives advice to singles. Put up number A for me. Letter A. There is an advantage that, that you can have of singleness. It comes from 26A where he says present distress, and he explains it in 29 through 31. And that advantage of singleness is, argument against the pro-celibates is, because you're single... You have the ability in you, an easier ability, to be able to uh, grasp the appointed time. Like, all right, that's awesome. What does that mean? (laughs) Grasp the appointed time? That sounds great, Fudd. Can you explain to me what the world that means? Yes, I can. All right, let's get it. Because it is difficult to understand. The the commentators were saying this is probably one of the most difficult texts to understand in the chapter. Um, But it's nice they explain things. I think this is what they're saying, right? So let's notice 29 through 31. And let's notice the language that he uses on the front end and back end, because it helps us understand. 29, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. Now, remember, I just said they all believe that the eschaton or the end times or Jesus' second coming is like any, any time now. So we believe that Jesus is about to come at any point. And he says, what I mean, brothers, is that the appointed time has grown very short. We have a very short little time that we're going to get to here, live here. So the singleness that you have is a gift. Notice what he says in 31. For the present form of this world is passing away. What this world is going to be like is about to end compared to what it's going to be in eternity. So when we read that middle section, the, the in-between is what's difficult. We're like, for now on, let those who have wives live as though they don't, they don't have one. What? And those who mourn like they're not mourning. But how do you do that? And those who rejoice as though they're not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world, I'm supposed to... Be mourning, but I'm supposed to act like I'm, I'm supposed to let those who rejoice like they're not rejoicing. So in marriage, whenever I have children, they bring lots of joy. And so he's saying it's easier for the single person to be able to not have to live like that. For in marriage, I have some mourning. It's easier for the single person to not have to live like that. Because uh, here's basically what, here's what I mean. For the married, for the married people, the end times uh, brings about an end to the present time. That's just an obvious statement, right? One day, uh, if the end comes, what's going on in my family? We got, you know, six kids and one coming. I got all kinds of like thoughts in my head. Like one day, all these kids are going to be married. I'm going to have like, you know, 35 grandkids or something. You're like, like, this is going to be amazing, right? And so I, I, in my heart, have this kind of divided heart where I think, man, I really wish that I could have another 40 years, 50 years so I can see all that stuff happen. And so... I have this division in my heart where I want Jesus to come, but it'd be nice if it was 50 years where I could see all these things happen in my family, right? The single person doesn't have to deal with that. 
they can say, there's no dividing in their heart. They're not watching these. They, they just say, Jesus, you can come right now. And there's no kids. And it's fine with me. So an advantage of singleness is that you can grasp the appointed time easier than I can. Because I really kind of have this divided heart where I really would like another 50 years. And I know that's, that's not what the Bible wants. That's not what Jesus wants. But at the same time, it's not, it's not wrong. It's not like, you know, disregard your family. But as those who mourned, they were not mourning. Those who rejoiced, it's easier, I think, for singles to be able to grasp that appointed time or hold tight to that appointed time. There's no conflictions that singleness would have to feel like a married person at the same degree. Because uh, if it comes along, they haven't been married. They haven't had kids yet or, or even at all. And presumably, uh, where I want to grasp to another 40 or 50 years, it will be easier for them to say, no, Jesus can come right now. It's fine with me. And so an advantage of singleness is that you can grasp the appointed time easier. Now, that's when he talks about the present distress. Present distress. But there's also worldly troubles. A second advantage to singleness is that you won't have to have worldly troubles. He's going to explain that in 32 through 35. So go ahead and put up point B. Point B. Um, another advantage of singleness is that you are free from the anxieties of marriage. And let's just be honest. There's some anxieties in marriage, right? Is there anxieties? Wives are like, yes, right, there is. Him. Um, and I'll be like, no, it's not me, it's the kids. Um, but Paul, the, the worldly troubles that he speaks of is if you're single, you don't have to deal with the anxieties of marriage. Now, Paul explains that to us. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. The married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. Let's not, let's not make that sinful. It just doesn't mean he's like worldly, sinful, awful, terrible things. It just means there's only so much time in the day. And because Lord tells him Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Um, and Ephesians 6, to raise your children in the admonition of the Lord. That's going to take some time. And that's going to take effort. And that's gonna, I'm, because of that, I only get so many hours. I have to obey the Lord and devote hours towards that. And every hour I devote towards that, I don't get to vote towards complete ministry like Paul. And so he's saying the worldly desires just means things that aren't necessarily... Uh, Bringing the kingdom about, of course, you know, you can lead your kids to Christ. We understand that. But, you know, I also just have to make them a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, right? That's just a worldly trouble that I have to deal with. Or, well, I, Christy makes some better food than me. Anyway, so the world, the, and the same thing about the woman. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in spirit and body. But the married woman is anxious about the worldly things. And that just means the things that she has to do in the family, how to please her husband. And so an advantage of being single is that you're free from those things. And when you're free from those things, you get to uh, attend to just the things of the Lord. Blomberg says it this way. Attending to the concerns of a spouse and children takes away uh, from, from the married couples uh, from ministering to the needs of others, both in the church and the world. It just does. And that's okay. I mean, that's what he calls us to. But singles, specifically celibates, can be focused on how the can be focused on the Lord and how to please them. They can be single-minded, no pun intended, maybe some, um, fully devoted to God, where married men and married women cannot, like a single person. And let's just be clear here, single people. I want to I want to talk to you just for a second. You are not free to do whatever you want until marriage. 
Singleness is not a time where you get to do whatever you want into your marriage. As it says in verse 7, it's a gift from God. You ever been to summer camp where you have all these kind of structured things in the morning till, till lunch, and then after that from like 1 to 5 you get free time? Singleness is not camp summer free time where you just get to do whatever you want now until you get married. I can do whatever I want. It's free time. <laughs> that is not at all what it is. As a matter of fact, if I'm reading the scriptures correctly, single people have more time to do the ministry than married people. So the bulk of the ministry in the church should probably be done by the single people. The, those who are having to uh, are, are given the gift of celibacy right now. Mathematically, it just seems like that's the case, right? So this isn't summer camp free time for you to do whatever you want until you finally get married where you can really start focusing on the work of the Lord. Instead, um, you actually have this unique opportunity to be able to do things I can't do. You can go for a week at a time to the Middle East. I can't really do that very easily. You can go for a month at a time to the Middle East. You can do all kinds of things. You can go see people at midnight uh, that need to hear about Jesus. There's all kinds of things that you can do that I can't do right now. And so let's realize that singleness, because he says the unmarried person has the opportunity to focus on the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. So being single is not do whatever you want. As a matter of fact, God's given you that extra time that married people don't have to really, really knock out home runs for the Lord, right? Grand slams for Jesus right now is what you have. I'm just trying to not get struck out, right? I'm just trying to draw a walk, get on base here and there while I navigate seven children, six children, one day seven. Um, my wife's having to get, navigate seven children right now um, and one day eight. So uh, that, I'm the child. She tells me that all the time. She really has eight children, just in private, though. Anyway, um, and that means we're not having another one. I'm the child. So uh, single people, I want to make sure you understand that the Bible gives you this gift as a unique opportunity in your life to really have effective ministry for Christ. Now, I want to close this section uh, by giving some practical advice to Christian singles. So section C is miscellaneous practical advice to Christian singles. I would invite you right now to write this down and go listen to this sermon. Just last week, Matt Chandler preached a sermon on singleness. Just 25 through 40. July 2nd, 2017, Singleness Village Church. Google all that together and you'll get it, right? Uh, He preaches a sermon just on singleness. And I'm going to take some of his ideas and give you three practical pieces of advice. Just go listen to the whole thing. But I'm going to whet your appetite with it. He's an, an amazing, amazing teacher. Um, so l- let me be the first to concede, as he does when he s- starts the sermon, that I have not lived like you have lived. I got married young, and so I didn't have an extended uh, singleness as a Christian man into my late 20s, even into my 30s. And so I haven't had to live as a full-time employee, working a job as a single man, trying to buy a house and figure it out as a single. I've just been married young. like So I don't... And I'll concede, I don't understand fully all the things you go through. I, I, I know that. And so let me just say, I, I get that. And you have to and will ha- have had to uh, think about things and live through things that I've never had to think about and deal with. But at the same time, let me give you some, some practical advice for you. The first thing is about remaining single. Chandler says, the longer singleness remains, especially in America, in the hearts of people the more both the singles and the marrieds start viewing that situation through the lenses of loss. You're just like, oh, it's so bad that you're still, ma- you're still not married yet. Maybe one day. And it's just, you kind of think of it as like this poor, like in a funeral kind of sense. Like, it's just, 
we're mourning these days that you have to go through in your 20s where you're just not quite married yet. You poor thing. And he wants to point out, and I think obviously right, that this is not true. The Bible never speaks about this, being single in this particular way. And nor should you. As a matter of fact, as we saw, it never looks at it through the lenses of loss. It looks at it through the lenses of a gift where you have an amazing opportunity to do an incredible amount of ministry for God. So don't think of it as like, poor me, one day I will. But until then, I'm in this kind of holding pattern where I don't get to do anything. That's not it. The Bible never thinks of it that way. So about remaining single... It's not an everyday funeral until you get married. It's just not the way to think about it. The second thing, and more obviously, is the sexual temptation that singles deal with. He says this. This is so good. The lie that America right now is teaching you is that sexual expression and sexual experience are absolutely necessary for human flourishing. The pervasive pervasive, persistent lie that we're drinking in every day in America with commercial after commercial, like the Hardee's commercials, and every ad is to, in order to be fully alive, there must also, like, really be human is to also have sexual expression and sexual experience, even outside of marriage. And so he points that out, and I just want to point out, this is absolutely not true whatsoever. Do not buy into this lie. Married people can also, just like you, deal with sexual temptation. And so you don't need to isolate yourself and feel like you're absolutely alone in that. Instead, you should come alongside anyone, married or single, and talk about these things with people and feel fully able to be able to uh, talk about these things, realizing that everybody deals with it just like you. You're not a weird person by yourself, isolated. How do I deal with this? I can't ever talk about it. As a matter of fact, that's not the case at all. And you should realize, uh, don't buy into the lie that you're isolated in that. Every person married or non, is dealing with that. And so you need to open up conversation with people that you trust and have great uh, Christ-honoring, growing in Christ conversations with them. So remaining single, sexual temptation. The last little piece of advice is regarding loneliness that most singles can feel like they, they feel. Chandler says, I think singles will struggle with loneliness in a very different way than married people will struggle with loneliness. I like to lay down, I'd like to lay down from the start that everybody in certain seasons or certain time in their life is going to struggle with loneliness, married or not. Uh, the single will think that loneliness might just be filled by a spouse, but the married person is not under that illusion. So don't buy into the lie that once you, find, that you finally have a spouse, then you won't be lonely anymore. Maybe you won't, but maybe you will. Maybe you will. And there's plenty of married people that also feel lonely. And just like sexual temptation, I want to point out to you that You are not isolated here, and you need to have that conversation with anybody, whether they're single or married. I feel alone, and it's fine and perfectly normal for you to feel that. You're not by yourself. Every person feels that sometimes, married or not. And so you don't need to feel like, I can't ever talk about this with anybody because no one will understand. You should. And just as a real practical manner, let me just say this. Um, Single folks, when we invite you, we as in the married people, Come to the junk we invite you to. Come, 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 come to it, right? Married folk, let me just talk to you for a second. Invite the single folk to people, right? To to your stuff, I mean. Invite the single folk to your events, your parties. Don't just think, well, we have kids and they have kids and they have kids. We'll put them all together. They'll play and we'll go have a barbecue and they can do whatever they want. Invite people to everything that's going on. Uh, Don't let it just be and feel like um, this is a single event. This is a married event. There should none be us. It's just events, And everybody's invited. Don't isolate yourself away from it, single people. 
married people, don't just invite just the people that are just like you. That's the whole point of being the body. The hand needs the eye. The single people need the married people. The married people need the single people. Maybe the single people, the eye. Who knows? Whatever. You know, it's just an analogy. But invite, invite, invite. And come and come and come to stuff. And let's be the body together. Let's uh, talk about what's going on in our lives, the things that are happening, the things we're experiencing, the way we feel, temptation towards things, struggling with things. We need to be the church and do these things together. Um, If we keep going... And I have to I have to keep going to verse 36 through 38. Uh, this is just a restatement, I think, of 8 and 9. 8 and 9 where he says, if you can't, if you, if you are not exercising self-control, you should get married. He's basically just saying that again to people that are, I think, later on in life that are engaged. Uh, if anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly towards his betrothed and his passions are strong, let him be. Uh, let him get married. It's not a sin to get married. You should just go ahead and get married. That's the basic gist of 36 through 38. And then as he ends, you can go ahead and put up number four. He concludes the, all of it by, by laying down this, this general rule to make us understand everything in verses 39 and 40. The conclusion, 36 through 40, but 39 and 40 is the main. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. The same thing with a husband. A husband is bound to his wife as long as she lives. So arguments against the pro-celibates that are saying to get divorced, Paul's saying no. As long as they're alive, you, you are bound to them. Notice he switched back to bound here, away from the slavery language, back to bound. You're bound as long as they are alive. If a husband dies or if the wife dies, he or she is now free to be married to someone else, but not unless they're dead. If they're alive... That's who you can be married to. Only in the Lord. So obviously he puts the caveat back to verse 15. That happened before because of an unbelieving partner. Here, it should never happen again if you're both Christians. Yet, in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as he is. And now that's just his opinion because he's been given the gift of singleness and he loves the, the freedom he has to do ministry. I mean, he, this guy's all over the place, right? He's getting beat up. No spouse is going to be like, Paul, just go get beat up again. I want you as my husband to, to die, have a, a chance to die every day for Jesus. <laughs> they want them alive, especially if they have children. Um, that's why I can't. Never mind. Anyway, yet my ju- have a motorcycle. In my my judgment, she if she remains as she is, or do skydiving, and um, not better. Um, yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. And so here, Paul closes by saying, the marriage bond is in effect until the spouse dies. The marriage bond is in effect until the spouse dies. And so argument against the, the uh, pro celibates. Now, let's just take it up and think about this. Marriage is a gift to us from Christ. And so Christ is the husband of the church. And everybody that's a believer is part of the bride of Christ, the church. So just as a reminder for all of us, uh, the reason why God has given us marriage is because he wants us to understand the good news of the gospel better, which is since Christ died on the cross, he purchased for himself a bride. And not only did she come really sinful, she did, but he also, because he died on the cross, forgives her. Whenever we repent of our sin, we confess we're sinners, we confess that we need Christ, he forgives us our sin and he takes the bride, that's us, that's you and me individually, and he washes us, he cleanses us, he forgives us of all of our sin, he fills with the Holy Spirit, and now we are set on a new life in Christ. And so this marriage, all this marriage talk is, has a greater meaning, which is all of us 
can be a part of the bride of Christ. All of us, if we trust in Christ, can be forgiven of all of our sin, declared righteous, declared holy, declared completely innocent of everything. And so if you're not a Christian, he's calling you and beckoning you right now saying, trust in him, believe in his work on the cross for you, receive this forgiveness, receive all of his righteousness and perfection given to you. You are forgiven of all of your sin if you trust in Christ. And you are now part of the church, part of the bride of Christ. And one day we'll be with him in heaven forever. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for this truth that marriage adorns the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that you are our savior and you forgive us as sinners. Thank you so much for that. Would you be with us now as we go into the time of the Lord's Supper where we celebrate this good news. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.